Newsflash. You're now tuned into a special episode of Bench Talk, The Week in Science. Dave Robinson here, and we've got a lot of ground to cover today. First, a discussion of some of the more important science and education bills up before the Kentucky legislature this year. Then, a fascinating story about unlocking the secrets of Roman concrete that could really make concrete construction more sustainable in the future. And then finally, an illuminating review of what marvels await us in the night sky during the month of March. So hang on, folks. Let's get right to it. There are about three dozen bills that have come up in the Kentucky legislature this session that have some sort of science or educational angle to them, and we're going to try to touch on 15 of them today. Providing leadership on this task is the Kentucky Academy of Science and the Kentuckians for Science Education. These two nonprofit organizations are keeping a close eye on what's happening in Frankfort, Kentucky this session, and they have a fabulously helpful website to keep track of all these bills. If you want to see it, just do an internet search for Kentucky Academy of Science State Legislative Issues 2023. That's Kentucky Academy of Science, State Legislative Issues 2023, for an updated list of bills related to STEM right here in Kentucky. Now, we're not taking a position on these bills. That's for you to figure out. We just want you to know about them. And before you go thinking that by the time you hear this story, it's going to be too late to be involved, Let me remind you that the Kentucky legislature will remain in session until March 30th, 2023. So there's a long ways to go on these bills. There's five bills in particular having to do with K-12 education that the Kentuckians for Science Education think are particularly of interest. Here's those five. Senate Bill 107. Senate Bill 107 establishes the Board of Education Nomination Committee. It requires the Commissioner of Education to be subject to Senate confirmation, and it requires the Commissioner of Education to be subject to an annual review by the Kentucky Board of Education. Now, you know, it's the Governor of Kentucky that appoints 11 of the 15 voting members of the Board of Education So, Senate Bill 107 gives the governor some real oversight over that board. And the Senate also gets more oversight with the requirement that they confirm the Commissioner of Education. So, that was Senate Bill 107. Then there's House Bill 174 that proposes to create a new section of the Constitution of Kentucky that authorizes the General Assembly to provide for the educational costs of elementary and secondary school students outside of the public school system. So, House Bill 174 provides ballot language for submission to voters for ratification or rejection of this constitutional amendment. So, HB 174 is basically allowing for public vote on this issue of using taxpayer money to help pay for private schools. HB 174. Then there's House Bill 171, 
Now, 171 concerns FAFSA. FAFSA stands for Free Application for Federal Student Aid. And it's a form that's completed now by current and prospective college students in the United States. And it helps determine their eligibility for student financial aid. So at this point, I think it's more of an option for high school students. But HB 171 will require completion of the form before graduation from high school. Now, it does provide some waiver options for meeting that requirement. And it does require procedures to assist students in completing the requirement. And high schools will also be expected to report potential graduate information to the proper Kentucky authority. So HB 171 is going to require high school students to fill out and presumably submit FAFSA forms. HB 171. Then there's House Bill 196. HB 196 establishes a Kentucky Mental Health Safety Center at the University of Louisville. This involves creating, implementing, and maintaining a real-time electronic mental health application. This mental health safety center will be available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. And the mental health safety center will be available at no cost to all elementary, secondary, and post-secondary students and the parents and teachers of those students. HB 196. And then there's HB 33. That's going to provide incentive for more innovative teaching. HB 33 establishes the Innovative Teacher Education Grant Program. That's House Bill 33. So that was K-12 education legislation. How about bills relating to post-secondary education? Well, there's Senate Bill 66, which requires public universities to provide data upon request that's been provided by or paid for by the Commonwealth of Kentucky. So I'm not exactly sure, but I think they're referring to reports written by consulting companies that are hired by universities, but paid for using public funds. Now the Kentucky government would find out what's in those reports. That's what Senate Bill 66 says. Now let's go back over to the House, House Bill 136. HB 136 prohibits the Council on Post-Secondary Education from raising tuition for any post-secondary educational institution for more than 5% a year for resident students and 7% a year for non-resident students. HB 136 also provides a four-year tuition freeze for all enrolled resident students, and it requires any increase in tuition or fees to be approved before March 1st of the preceding school year. House Bill 136 also adds more faculty and students to the Board of Trustees for both University of Louisville and University of Kentucky. So the bottom line, HB 136 is going to make it more difficult for public colleges and universities to raise tuition. HB 136. And then there's HB 200. House Bill 200 establishes a Kentucky Healthcare Workforce Investment Fund for the purpose of awarding scholarships to eligible students. 
So basically, HB 200 means more public dollars invested in health care. House Bill 200. Well, there's four bills involving the environment that are up before the House and Senate this year that the Kentuckians for Science Education are concerned about. The first one is HB 160. Well, you've probably heard that saying somewhere that the solution to pollution is dilution, right? Well, that's not really the best way to fight pollution, but it's still very commonly done anyway. And that's what House Bill 160 concerns. Basically, 160 tries to resolve an exception that had been made in a previous law. HB 160 provides that any Kentucky Pollutant Discharge Elimination System permittee seeking to rely on a mixing zone for any bioaccumulative chemical assigned before 2004 include information identifying the actual mixing zone in its application for approval of a permit. Whoo! Now, I looked into this a little bit more, and the Kentucky Resources Council, which is a long-standing environmental lobbying group, says that HB 160 would basically amend an existing law that had some bad loopholes in it. HB 160 would specifically regard a company called Westlake Vinyls that manufactures PVC for plastic products. Westlake Vinyls is a company located in western Kentucky, right between Paducah and Land Between the Lakes. And apparently it's been exempted from a previous ban on mixing toxic PVC pollutants with water from the nearby Tennessee River. This bill might correct that exemption. So the Kentucky Resources Council is supporting this bill, House Bill 160. Then there's House Bill 187 that requires that a greenhouse gas emissions reduction agreement be properly recorded. The Kentucky Resources Council is supporting this bill, House Bill 187. And then there's House Bill 197, which happens to be the only bill that I'm discussing today that was filed by a Democrat rather than a Republican. And this one concerns PFAS chemicals per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances. PAFAS chemicals are often called forever chemicals because of their persistence both in our bodies and in the environment. House Bill 197 would require the Energy and Environment Cabinet to establish maximum PFAS chemical limits and monitoring requirements for drinking water provided by public and semi-public water systems. House Bill 197 also sets monitoring requirements for discharges into the waters of the Commonwealth. Now, we had a good story on these toxic PAFAS chemicals back on October 24th, 2022. So check out the forwardradio.org website for that. And I can tell you that the Kentucky Resources Council is supporting House Bill 197. And let's go over to the Senate for Senate Bill 4, which prohibits the Public Service Commission from approving any request by a utility to retire coal-fired electric generators unless the utility can demonstrate that the retirement will not have a negative impact on the reliability or the resilience of the electric grid or affect the affordability of the customer's electric utility rate. 
So Senate Bill 4 is going to make it a lot harder to transition from coal power to gas or solar or wind power. It's just going to be more difficult. And the Kentucky Resources Council is opposing this bill, Senate Bill 4. And there's three bills in the Kentucky legislature that I would put in the tinfoil hat category. There's House Bill 74, which is also filed in the Senate as SB 127 about water fluoridation. House Bill 74 would make water fluoridation programs optional, allowing the governing bodies of water systems to decide whether they want to participate in water fluoridation programs. Now, fluoridation of water systems has been a controversial topic in Kentucky for many years now. On the one hand, the CDC and the American Dental Association recommends us putting fluoride in our water to reduce tooth decay in adults and children. But many folks in Kentucky question the health benefits of fluoridation, and they also consider it a freedom of choice issue. The Kentucky Resources Council is opposed to HB 74 and presumably Senate Bill 127. And then finally, Senate Bill 114. SB 114 requires that any individual who administers an unapproved drug that has been approved for emergency use by the Food and Drug Administration provides information on that action. SB 114 prohibits any person from being required to have an unapproved drug administered. I'm pretty sure this bill has some anti-vaccine backing to it. It seems to be a pushback against the COVID-19 vaccine mandates that Governor Bashir adopted during the heights of the COVID-19 pandemic. Should it be legal for any entity to require employees or students, for instance, to take medicines or vaccines that have only gone through emergency use authorization by the FDA? Well, that and all these other bills are something that you need to decide. So if you want to know more about these bills and others, just do an internet search for Kentucky Academy of Science State Legislative Issues 2023. But let's move on. Let's hear about something a little more concrete. It's Bench Talk team member Mary Williams. Take it away, Mary. Mary Williams here. The question today is, could the knowledge of ancient Romans' methods of making long-lasting concrete help to reduce global greenhouse emissions in today's world? First, let's talk about Roman concrete. The ancient Romans were masters of engineering, constructing vast networks of walls, roads, bridges, aqueducts, ports, and massive buildings, many of whose remains have lasted over 2,000 years. One of the best-known examples of the durability of Roman concrete is a structure found on an ancient Roman road known as the Appian Way. Along this road stands a tower built around 30 BCE, which houses the tomb of Cecilia Metella, a woman of nobility. This tower stands 100 feet in diameter and 70 feet tall. So Cecilia Metella 
was obviously held in high regard, even though we don't know much about her life. But amazingly, the concrete fabric of her tomb is still standing after 2,050 years. Some ancient Roman aqueducts still deliver water to Rome today. Rome's famous Pantheon, which has the world's largest unreinforced concrete dome and was dedicated in 128 BCE, is still intact. The durability of Roman concrete has puzzled scientists, architects, and engineers for a long time. Unlike their modern counterparts, ancient Roman mortars and concretes have remained durable in a variety of climates, seismic zones, and even in direct contact with seawater. Modern concrete can start breaking down after only 50 years. So with Roman concrete lasting more than two millennia, there is a lot of interest in this ancient technology. Could the materials and techniques for making this concrete in ancient Rome be adapted to make a more durable and sustainable concrete today? In a study to find out the secret to Roman concrete, a team of engineers from MIT, Harvard University, and laboratories in Italy and Switzerland have made progress in discovering these bygone engineering strategies. They set about chemically analyzing 2,000-year-old concrete samples obtained from an archaeological site in Privernum, Italy, which is in central Italy, south of Rome. The findings were published on January 6, 2023, in the journal called Science Advances. Modern concrete is made of an aggregate, which is rocks, sands, and gravels in a cement binder. The cement of a modern sidewalk is likely Portland cement, which is produced by heating limestone and clay materials in a kiln set to 600 degrees centigrade to form clinker, which sort of looks like gravel. Then the clinker is ground down into a powder, and a small amount of gypsum is added. When water and gravel gets added to Portland cement, it forms a liquid matrix that can be poured into any mold, eventually hardening into concrete. But ancient Roman concrete was different. For years, it was assumed that the key to the ancient concrete's durability was based on one key ingredient, pozzolanic materials such as volcanic ash from the area of Pozzuoli, just west of Naples on the bay. This specific ash was shipped across all of the Roman Empire to be used in construction and was described as a key ingredient for concrete by ancient architects and historians. According to Professor Masick, the lead author of this paper, the team discovered that the ancient samples of concrete contained small distinctive bright white mineral features that were just millimeters in size. These small white chunks, often referred to as lime clasts, originate from lime and have long been recognized as a component of Roman concrete. Professor Masick stated, quote, 
Ever since I first began working with ancient Roman concrete, I've always been fascinated by these features. They are not found in modern concrete formulations, so why are they present in these ancient materials? Unquote. Previously thought to be evidence of poor quality raw materials or careless mixing practices, the new study suggests that these tiny lime clasps gave the concrete a previously unrecognized self-healing capability. Upon further study of these lime clasps, using high-resolution, multi-scale imaging and techniques pioneered in Dr. Masick's research lab, the researchers gained new insight into the potential function of these lime clasps. In studying samples of ancient concrete, Dr. Masick and his team determined that the white inclusions were made of calcium carbonate, and further examination showed that these had been formed at extreme temperatures, as would be expected from the exothermic reaction produced by using quicklime instead of, or in addition, to slaked lime in the mixture. Quicklime is pure calcium oxide whereas generic lime contains a mixture of types of calcium, silicon, magnesium, aluminum, and iron. The team concluded that hot mixing was actually the key to the super-durable concrete mixture. During hot mixing, the lime class forms an architecture that could provide a critical self-healing function. When tiny cracks form in the hard concrete, the lime clasts would be exposed, allowing them to mix with water, thus creating a calcium-saturated solution, which can recrystallize as calcium carbonate. The calcium carbonate solution can fill the crack or react with pozzolanic material to strengthen the concrete again. To examine whether this was indeed the answer to the question of the durability of Roman concrete, the research team produced samples of hot mix concrete that incorporated both ancient and modern concretes, deliberately cracked them, and then ran water through the cracks. Within two weeks, the cracks in the simulated Roman concrete had completely healed, whereas the concrete made without quicklime never healed. Dr. Masick said, quote, it's exciting to think how these more durable concrete formulations could expand not only the service life of these materials, but also how it could improve the durability of 3D printed concrete formulations. Unquote. By creating a concrete formulation with an extended functional lifespan and the development of lighter weight concrete formulas, Dr. Masick hopes to reduce the environmental impact of cement production, which currently accounts for 8% of global greenhouse emissions. Perhaps this ancient Roman technology can help scientists develop a longer-lasting, self-healing, more sustainable concrete. And that would be a good thing for everyone. This is Mary Williams signing off. Thanks for listening. Thanks for that fascinating story, Mary. Now let's hear from J. Scott Miller, 
What can we see in the night sky during the month of March? Take it away, Scott. Scott here. March brings on thoughts of spring, officially starting soon. Astronomically, the first day of spring in the northern hemisphere is defined as that moment when the sun appears to be exactly over the equator. That moment this year is on March 20th at 5.24 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Of course, this also means that the sun rises directly in the east and sets directly in the west, giving us about 12 hours of darkness and 12 hours of daylight at this time. This might be good for folks that need that extra amount of daylight, but if I want to go outside to view the night sky, it pushes that back a bit. And as we move toward summer, that means even later evening starts to view the wonders of the night sky. Heading outside about 7.30 in the evening in early March, there are planets to be found. Much of the excitement is happening in the western sky during early March. On March 1st, a look to the west will find Jupiter and Venus in conjunction. If you have been able to view these two through the end of February, you may have noticed them getting closer. Now they are side by side in the sky. As March continues, they will separate with Jupiter getting ever closer to the western horizon each evening. If the horizon is flat at your location, you may see a thin crescent moon next to Jupiter on the 22nd, just a few days before it disappears from the evening sky. In addition to Jupiter and Venus, Mars is still visible high up in the southwest skies as darkness falls. It finds itself among the horned stars of Taurus the Bull. Below it is the red-colored star Aldebaran, the brightest star in Taurus. Taurus is most easily marked by the V-shaped cluster of stars called the Hyades. It now looks like a right-side-up V and marks the face of Taurus. Aldebaran marks the end of one arm of the V. Though it would seem to be part of the cluster, it is about half the distance between us and that cluster. Almost gives a 3D aspect to the night sky. If I extend the arms of the V upward a bit more, two more relatively bright stars are seen, marking the tips of the horns of Taurus. It is in this area that Mars is located. To the right of the Hyades is a tighter grouping of stars called the Pleiades. This group appears to be tighter than the Hyades, and with good reason. They are even farther away from us, further adding to that 3D aspect of the nighttime sky. To the left of Taurus, more around to the south in the early evening, is Orion the Hunter. The three stars marking a belt around his waist first catch our eyes. Two bright stars above mark his shoulders, two below his knees. A line of faint stars just below the belt marks a sword tucked there. The shoulder star that is leftmost of the two is Betelgeuse. The one that marks his right shoulder is Bellatrex. Midway between these two, one can catch a patch of three stars marking a triangle. This would mark the head of Orion. Below the belt, stars are Rigel, a bright bluish-white star marking his front knee. The dimmer Saif marks his back knee, as Orion is pictured striding toward the direction of Taurus. The belt stars of Orion can be used to point westward toward Aldebaran and Taurus, but one can also extend that line eastward to Sirius. Sirius is the brightest star in the sky for several reasons. First, it is relatively close to us at a distance of about 8.6 light years. Second, it is a star much hotter than our sun and thus more luminous. 
Sirius is about 25 times more luminous than the sun. Sirius is about 70% larger than the sun in diameter, giving it more surface area from which to emit light compared to our sun. So putting a bigger, hotter star closer to us than any other star makes for Sirius catching our eyes. Sirius is the brightest star in the constellation Canis Major, the big dog. With a bit of imagination, it is not too hard to put together the stars of Canis Major and see a dog. Just above Sirius is a triangle of stars all about the same brightness marking the head. Below Sirius are several stars that can be imagined to be the chest and front legs of the dog. It takes a bit of practice, but it can be done. Somewhat calming as I now go back inside after a brief tour of the night skies of March. Thanks, Scott, and thank you for tuning in to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. Check out our old episodes on our Facebook page or on our website, and to find that, just do a search for Forward Radio Bench Talk. Thanks, and see you next week. <laughs>